So the reading this morning is taken from 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. And in the Church Bibles, that can be found on page 820. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then to us, in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty supply what you need. Then there will be equality, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, thanks be to God. God. But allow me to pray. Father God, we thank you that you speak through your word reliably and clearly Please help us to hear from you and to do what you're calling us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're beginning a two-part series in, uh, well, a, a series I've titled The Grace of Christian Giving. The Grace of Christian Giving. And I guess it's important to state up front that this is a series about money, about your money. And about my money. And I say that by way of warning because I guess a lot of us will have been raised to think that talking about money is not really the done thing. It's not really done in polite company. Uh, but actually, I think as we look in the scriptures, we see that God isn't terribly concerned about good manners. He has a lot to say about how we use our money. You know, you, you, you look at the law in Israel, 
You look at the parables of Jesus, you look at the letters of Paul, and we're told over and over again that how we use our money and our other resources says a lot about our hearts, about what really matters to us. Now, you may remember a few weeks ago we were in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's a strong link, according to Scripture, about how we spend our money and what our hearts are set on. And it's pretty obvious, isn't it, when you think about it? You know, we spend our money on things that matter to us, don't we? The person who gives $1,000 a month to the Saikung stray friends, well, they must love dogs. They don't want to see any of the dogs be put down. I see some head shakes. Maybe you're giving more or, or less to Saikung stray friends. Uh, the person who buys a Lamborghini, well, they probably care more about status and about speed than they do about boot space, for instance, right? You're not buying it so you can haul things around in it. The person who buys a coffee every day on the way to work values convenience over thriftiness. So how do I use my money? It's a great diagnostic question that shows us what our hearts really value. And if that's a test that reveals our hearts, well, this morning's passage shows us a model of a healthy heart in the Macedonians. And then it shows us a, a prescription for how to bring our hearts back to full health. So as we attend to this passage from 2 Corinthians uh, 8, and then next week from 2 Corinthians 9, we're going to see the most thorough treatment of giving in the New Testament the most thorough uh, discussion of why Christians give and what Christians give. And although there are dozens of things that we could take from these two chapters, this morning, from these first 15 verses, I just want to share three things. The first is this, that Christian giving is motivated by God's grace. The second is that Christian giving is willing and proportionate. And the third is that Christian giving is aiming towards equality. So first, Christian giving is motivated by God's grace. Now look again at verses 1 to 5 with me. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then to us in keeping with God's will. So according to verse 2, the, the Macedonian church were in a position of real difficulty. Uh, we aren't told explicitly here what the issue was, but we actually have some letters to Macedonian churches in the New Testament, Philippians and Thessalonians. Those are churches in Macedonia. And so we can piece it together and say, these churches are experiencing real persecution for their faith. Now, they were being targeted for their faith, and it seems like their severe trial had resulted in extreme poverty among the churches there. Literally, in the Greek, it says, in the depths of poverty, 
think rock bottom, poverty. Now Macedonia, it's a fairly wealthy region of the Roman Empire, but this persecution meant that Christians faced economic and social exclusion for the sake of their faith. Just one example, uh, Christians would have been excluded from the trade guilds of the day because what do you do in a trade guild? You get together and have cult dinners to pay homage to the patron god of the trade. So if, if you're a carpenter, you get together with the other carpenters, you have a cult meal to pay honor to the patron god of carpenters. And, and every trade would have those sorts of guilds and Christians say, no, we only serve the true and living god. And so they're not welcome at the trade guilds. Uh, they don't build those partnerships. They don't have those networking opportunities. Their livelihoods were damaged. You know, I guess as an aside, it's not that different from Christian businessmen today, some of them, who they miss out on the promotions and the salary rises because they don't go to socialize at the strip club with the other guys. Or they don't go to the bar with the boss and get excessively drunk week by week. And so they miss out. Now think of that on a, a far larger scale. And that's what's going on in Macedonia. The Christian faith can be costly for all sorts of reasons. And yet here, in their severe trial, they're overflowing with joy says Paul. Out of the depths of their poverty, they're welling up in rich generosity. Did you see that? That contrast? Their extreme poverty is welling up in rich generosity. Well, how is their joy and generosity shown? Well, it's shown in their financial support for Christian work. Now, many of you might recall from maybe looking at others of, of Paul's letters or the book of Acts, that Paul has a collection that he's gathering for the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was also experiencing intense persecution and therefore economic hardship. They're a poor church in Jerusalem. And so one of the focuses of Paul's ministry as he goes around the Mediterranean area is to call these new Gentile converts to Christianity in and to, to ask them, uh, to send funds back to the mother church, as it were, to Jerusalem. And Paul was passionate about that collection for a number of reasons, one of which is he believed that it was part of prophecy, that as the Gentiles are converted to the true and living God, they will make the Jews jealous uh, for how zealously they serve this God. Uh, they'll make the Jews want to serve this God more closely. So Paul uh, thought that was part of the reason to do this collection, I think. And he also thought, and I think this is maybe more important for us, that Paul wanted to see these churches see themselves as partners in the gospel. Not mere isolated units, not mere personal uh, kind of solely practiced faith, but as partners with other churches, partners with other Christians across the world, across their cities, across their church. And that only happens, you only get a sense of partnership when you invest in something. If there's no money in the, 
in the game, it's not interesting. If there's no investment in the company, well, if it goes up or if it goes down, who, who cares? But when you're invested, not just financially, but also financially, then it matters to you what happens. So here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he's urging the church to make their contribution to his collection. But even though he was passionate about this collection, he didn't approach the Macedonians. Not in their extreme poverty, their rock-bottom kind of poverty. And yet such was their enthusiasm for the gospel work that Paul was doing and, and that the, the churches in Jerusalem were doing, that they begged Paul to contribute, to allow them to take part in this ministry. So you have these extremely poor people begging Paul, please take our money and use it to serve God in the church in Jerusalem. Verse 4 says, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And in the end, Paul says, they not only made a contribution financially, but they gave of them very, their very selves, first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us, says verse 5. Well, that was beyond what could have been expected from the Macedonians, perhaps even beyond what was reasonable for the Macedonians. Now, they were persecuted, they were impoverished, but they gave spontaneously and willingly and generously. Now, what could have motivated them? Well, according to verse 1, it was the grace that God had given them. And Paul introduces their tremendous example by saying, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In other words, Paul is saying, the tremendous grace and generosity of the Macedonians is a result of the grace and generosity of God. But as a group of people going through severe trial, what had they received from God? And Paul explains in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And there we have one of the, the great summaries of the Christian message. The very definition of grace in that verse. Since before the world began, from time immemorial, the Lord Jesus Christ lived in the splendor and majesty of heaven. And yet, for our sake, he became poor. He took on human flesh. You know, even the most kingly existence in human flesh is poverty in compared to the majesty of heaven. And yet Jesus took on human flesh and became further impoverished. As he, he went to his death on the cross. And yet through his great poverty of death, came the great riches welling up for all of his people. And because of his extremely costly generosity in taking the punishment our sins deserve, well, we are rich beyond compare if we're Christians. And not materially wealthy, mind you. The Macedonians prove that. 
but rich because we've received God's unmerited kindness, his forgiveness, his unconditional love, the promise of eternal life, an eternal inheritance with him in heaven. That's what Jesus won for us by his poverty. Now that's grace. That's the invisible grace that when it is received by people, it changes hearts and lives. It changes the entire trajectory of lives when it's received. But when we receive it, the invisible becomes visible. The grace that we've received from God produces works of grace in our lives, or it should. Because we've received so much, we can't help but give. And that's what motivated the Macedonians. And Paul is telling us, look at their example of ridiculous, uncalled for, extravagant generosity, and consider how God's invisible grace is going to be made visible in your lives. Because a heart that has received generous grace cannot help but lead a life that displays generous grace. Christian giving is always primarily motivated by God's grace. If it's primarily motivated by any other reason, it's not Christian giving. Christian giving is motivated by God's grace. But lest we, or, or the Corinthian church indeed, be crushed by the example of the Macedonians, because who, who could bear that weight to be told, this is the way you need to act with your funds? We must recognize that, secondly, Christian giving should be willing and proportionate. Look again at verses 10 to 12 with me. Here's my advice for what's best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one doesn't have. I wonder how you feel about ads for charities that you see on television or on MTR uh, signs or on social media as you scroll through. I wonder how you find those. I often find them really off-putting. They use every possible tactic to try to manipulate you into giving. Maybe five dollars a day or a hundred dollars a month or, or whatever the the amount is that they're asking for. They show desperate-looking children. They show abused animals. They show people suffering terribly. And they make it seem monstrous to even consider not giving at all. You know, how dare you not give to this cause, their ads suggest. Or at least that's how it makes me feel. Now, they promised an eased conscience or, or a good feeling if you give. But I feel no shame in admitting that every time I see those things, I, I, I turn the channel, I, I keep scrolling, I, I turn away from the, the ad because I will not be manipulated into giving. I refuse to be manipulated into giving. I suggest you should refuse to be manipulated into giving. 
Because such extreme and, and manipulative ads, they might be what's needed to get our pagan culture to give, to wrestle the money out of a pagan's pockets, but not as Christians. It shouldn't be so with Christians. Christians should give willingly. Although Paul is urging the Corinthians to give, he says in verse 8, I'm not commanding you. Furthermore, verses 10 and 11 make it clear that he's simply urging them to give what they've actually already said they were willing to give. They'd already said, we'll give this in such and such amount. They'd planned to give in the collection, but as so often happens, their good intentions got lost in, in the bustle of life. But Paul says, willingly complete what you have willingly intended. And it's that kind of willingness, according to verse 12, that makes the gift acceptable. So there's no room for manipulation or compulsion in Christian giving. And, and so I want to promise you, as the pastor of Resurrection Church, that I will never try to manipulate you with shame or, or with guilt or with panic into giving to the work of Christ through this church. I will never command you to give a certain amount, as though I could. But even if I could, I wouldn't, because it would be wrong. It wouldn't be Christian giving to pressure you into giving more than you're willing to give. Because a gift given under compulsion is not pleasing to God. It doesn't please him at all. So I, I promise you that at Resurrection, we're going to present the church's financial needs and, and the opportunities that lay before us as a church. We'll present them to you in a clear and, and transparent way, and we'll ask you to prayerfully, thoughtfully, and willingly respond with generosity. That's how I want to operate. And that's what these letters on the, on the tables at the back are about this week. They lay out some of the financial situation of the church, and there's nothing to panic about at the moment, but we're not quite where we should be. And so, if there's a letter with your name on it at the back, please take that and read it this week and respond. We're asking if you could respond by next week in at least stating your intentions for the year ahead. Please do that. If you're here and you would like to contribute to the work of the church, but there's not a, an envelope with your name on it, take one of the ones that are unlabeled. We have a few spares there. But this is a matter for Christian people to take up, not for those who are unwilling, not for those who actually don't have a tie to this church. So if you're visiting, it's not a weight that you must bear. But do take one of those letters on your way out today and consider it and respond as appropriate. But if Christian giving should be willing, it should also be proportionate. You know, a, a millionaire who gives a hundred dollars a month is probably missing something, if that's the extent of their charity, right? But a student who lives on ramen, 
And maybe $100 a month for them is actually generosity. And the gift will be acceptable according to what they have, not according to what they do not have. Now that means that you and I will be held to different standards of generosity. Okay, if I get a raise, that might mean I can increase my giving, or even the percentage of my giving. You know, I could live on far less than 90% of my income. Maybe I give 20% uh, away and live on 80% or, or whatever. I don't want to give you a, a firm uh, number, but it's for you to figure out. If I get a raise, maybe I can increase my giving. If I become redundant, maybe I need to decrease my giving. And you know, God will be just as pleased with either decision, if we do it according to what he has given us in a proportional way. So don't feel any pressure. But there should be no expectation of a minimum or a maximum worthy gift. Any gift should be proportionately generous. The disproportionately sacrificial generosity of the Macedonians is not the expectation for Christians. Rather, Christian giving should be willing and proportionate. Finally, Christian giving aims towards equality. Verses 13 to 15 say this, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Now, the goal is equality. As it is written, the one who has gathered much did not have too much. And the one who has gathered little did not have too little. It's important that we don't define equality too narrowly. Paul does have in mind financial support for the church in Jerusalem, which was impoverished. But he doesn't have mere financial equality in mind, as though he were some sort of proto-Marxist. Okay? He's not asking us to redistribute income in that sort of way. The equality that Paul points us towards is much further reaching than that, actually. Now, that's far too shallow of a kind of equality. The translators of the NIV make this a bit difficult to see, but other translations, like the ESV, get closer to the Greek when it says in verse 14, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need. It isn't that Paul is saying, when they get some cash, they'll pay you back, don't worry. He's saying, the church in Jerusalem is currently supplying other churches out of its abundance. Now, we know that the church in Jerusalem was poor. So what are they abundantly providing? Well, it's the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ. That came to the Jews first, and then the Greeks. Now, they had carried the message of Christ's amazing generosity at the cross out to the known world. That Paul was a Jew. The, the disciples were Jews. All the first missionaries were Jews. And the Jewish church, therefore, the church in Jerusalem, had carried the message out to the world, and been richly generous in doing so. So in a very real sense, they were providing the spiritual riches of God's grace to the rest of the world. And so when Christians give, we should be aiming at equality. 
though material equality should get some concern, should be of some concern, we, we, we shouldn't necessarily get stuck on material equality. For in a very real sense, the most impoverished people in our area are those who know nothing of God's grace. Those who have never received the riches of the gospel. A person who struggles with financial poverty but knows the grace of God to them, their future is bright. They have a never-ending hope. But the wealthy person next door or the person at the top of the hill in, in the home you would love to live in who knows nothing of God's grace, their future is dark. Their suffering is greater than cameras can capture. Their poverty is more devastating than we recognize. And it might be that through our giving, we can in some way supply what they lack. So we've seen that Christian giving is motivated by grace, that Christian giving is done willingly and, and proportionately, and that Christian giving is aiming towards equality. So as you go out this week taking one of those letters with you, consider your giving here at Resurrection Church, and keep these principles in mind, and make God's generous, invisible grace visible in the way you conduct yourselves. Let's pray. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. We thank you, Lord that you are willing to become poor for our sake, to face the poverty of death on the cross, so that we might become unfathomably rich through your grace. Please help us to live lives of rich generosity towards others. And please help us to take that glorious message of your grace further and further out into Saikang, into Hong Kong into the world with us, wherever we go. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.